church of God that is in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called to be saints together with all those who are in every place. Call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that there be no division among you. But that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For just as the body is one and has many members. And all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Amen. Amen. All right, Trains of Church, how's your uh, holiday weekend going? You guys have a good fourth? I know the Borans sounds happy over there. It's good. It's good. Well, hey, if you're here for the first time and haven't met you yet, welcome to The Transit. My name is Nick, one of the pastors here. And today, as you can tell by that cool bumper, uh, we are uh, continuing our series looking at 1 Corinthians. So if you have your Bibles, uh, open them up or turn them on. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. And in our text today, so um, just a quick disclaimer for you parents who have uh, some of your older students or kids uh, in, in the room today because we have uh, uh, kids ministry closed. Just a quick disclaimer that uh, we'll be talking about kind of more mature themes in, in today's text, but I'll do my best to uh, keep it PG for the sake of the younger audience. And um, barring some un- unforeseen incident, and, and you know, if I say anything up here that is kind of offensive or, or not tasteful or whatever, please don't hesitate to email me at jeff at transitchurch.com. Um, <laughs> like really just fire away your thoughts, don't hold back. Um, so a quick, a quick recap of where we've been, uh, like a one-sentence recap of 1 Corinthians. Just going to get some good emails this week. Um, would be this, is that the Apostle Paul, around the early 50s AD, planted a, a church in the city of Corinth. And he was there for a year and a half and trained up some, some leaders. And then he left. He left. And he went on his third missionary journey. He's writing this letter from uh, Ephesus on his third missionary journey. And what had happened at Corinth was essentially when uh, uh, the, uh, the cats away, the mice play. And this young, immature, uh, uh, highly pagan church kind of reverted back to their old ways of thinking and their old ways of living. That's what we've been looking at the past six chapters is, is that they were um, plagued with division in the church. Uh, social snobbery, sexual immorality, and, and even, uh, even what we're going to see today, civil litigation. And what's interesting here, so I've got to lower this way too high. Jeff's a little bit taller than me. I'm a little bit shorter, so there we go. Okay. Paul's admonition to them about their behavior and their immorality, what's interesting, is not for, for all the chapters and, and all the stuff we've been covering so far, is not just stop this behavior. Just, just cut this out. Just try harder and do better. This is wrong. That's not what he says. What he always points the church back to is he says, this behavior of yours, this is not who you are. And this is not what you have in Christ Jesus. A repeated refrain, what we're going to see in our text today and what we've seen repeatedly over the past couple months in this letter, Paul says, do you not know, Corinthians? Have you so quickly forgotten the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified and the sweeping 
implications that that has for us. And so whenever it comes to uh, behavioral modification, if you will, a behavioral imperative for the Apostle Paul, whether for positive or negative, it's always in the order of identity and then uh, the imperative, then the command. So, uh, i.e., that which is imported to us, God wants exported through us to others. And um, so, the, so, so, for instance, the question that we might ask would be, well, hey, how should I treat my brother? How should I treat my neighbor? The, the follow-up question w- would be, well, how has God treated you in Christ Jesus? Now go and do likewise, because behavior as the believer is no matter, is no longer just a matter of this is right and this is wrong. Now just do right. No, no, see, through our behavior, we're telling the world this is what our God is like, and this is how he has dealt with us. And so that's Paul's encouragement in verses uh, 1 through 11 of our text today. And there's three things that I believe he points the church to in their identity and then, uh, and then their behavior. And the three things are this. Is, is one, Corinthians, you are the reconciled of God. Now strive and seek for reconciliation. Two, you're the forgiven of God. Now forgive others. And three, you're the righteous of God. Now hunger and thirst and strive to live out that righteousness you already have in Christ Jesus. So let's pray and we'll dive into this text. Heavenly Father, we come before you just declaring your goodness and your faithfulness to us. It is totally undeserving, Lord. Uh, Would we have eyes to see the the depths of your love for us in Christ Jesus? The, the, The lengths you've gone to shout at us that, 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 that you love us and you long to know us and, and, and have us be known by you. So I pray, Holy Spirit, you would move in power this morning. Uh, bring uh, these words uh, to life. I, I pray you speak life into the hearts and the minds of, of all of us present today and just fill us head to toe with your compassion for us, your love for us, that we would rest in our identity as Abba's child, your beloved son, your beloved daughter. And, um, we pray that and we ask that. In your name, Jesus, we pray, Lord, that your name would increase, mine would decrease up here. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, you're the reconciled of God. Now seek reconciliation. Look at verses one through six with me. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you... Oh, sorry, I lost my place here. And uh, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. So the question we got to ask is, well, what in the world is Paul addressing here? What's happening in the church at Corinth for Paul to say this? And, and what most scholars agree upon is that there was one rich, influential, pow- powerful person in the church at Corinth who is suing either one of two people, either another rich, influential, powerful person in the church at Corinth, because that's what wealthy people do, I guess, because you have enough money to sue each other, um, over some failed business dealing between them, right? Hey, I hope, you know, you got a lot of togas, because I'm going to sue the toga off of you, because this business deal went bad. So it's either that, 
or that rich, influential, powerful person in the church is now suing a a, a not-so-rich, not-so-influential member at the church at Corinth for, for services that went bad. You know, there was some kind of break in, you know, maybe, maybe the, the person in the church did tile and bath work, kitchen, you know, redid his kitchen and bath and didn't go like he wanted it to. And so instead of figuring it out, he, he said, all right, I'll see you in court. That's how, that's how this works. This is what the rest of the world does. This is how I'm going to uh, relate to you and handle this grievance. And, and Paul's reaction here, if you've read a lot of Paul's letters, uh, he, he gets, there's certain things that turn uh, the Apostle Paul from Bruce Banner to the Hulk, if you, if you catch my drift, right? And, and, and so we got to ask ourselves, why the severity, why the, the heightened rhetoric here when he's, when he's talking? And in verse 1, he says, how dare you? Does this person have the audacity to drag a brother through the process of civil litigation? And the three things that really kind of uh, uh, heighten Paul's rhetoric in his letters are, are, are one, Whenever he sees a distortion of the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Two, whenever he sees the church destroying each other. And and, and three, whenever he sees a defamation of the name of Jesus Christ. Those things are going to, whoa, that's going to amp Paul up a little bit, right? If if you're, when you're growing up, if your father had like that one thing, like he was kind of calm and cool and collected in the pocket, but like if you ever disrespected mom in front of dad, you see him turn to the Hulk. Well, those three things are kind of that thing for the Apostle Paul. And the first thing he's he's, uh, 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 pointing out here is that their conduct is a distortion of who they are. It's a distortion of the gospel. That their conduct is misrepresenting the work of Jesus Christ. Throughout these six letters, and right off on the right out of the gate in verse one, he says, "You're the saints. The, see, the, do you dare take a, a fellow brother, a, a saint, before the unrighteous?" Um, and, and what he's pointing them to there is their identity. Like this is who you are in Christ Jesus. You're saints. And, and, and I got news for you: saints should act like saints towards each other, not sue each other, right? You are the righteous, the reconciled of God. Now seek reconciliation. Don't seek victory in, in some grievance you have. This is not who you are. And then the second thing he points them to about how their conduct is misrepresenting both who they are in Christ Jesus, but what they have in Christ Jesus, is he says in verse 3, something kind of staggering. Again, he says that refrain, do you not know? He says, do you not know that we, this is pretty remarkable, are to judge angels? And if the world is to be judged by you, in verse 2, are you uh, incompetent to try trivial cases? That in a unique way, Scripture doesn't talk too much about this, but in a, u- in a unique way, we're going to participate in the final judgment as the saints of God, the heavenly judges. And what Paul is saying with that, he's saying, this is what you have, church, in Christ Jesus. And if you have this uh, a massive trial of weighty, eternal importance coming up, can you not figure out the, the, these, the, this trivial case? These trivial matters. And he says, uh, maybe sarcastically, kind of sarcastically, he says, can it be, can it be that there is no one among you who can help you handle this dispute in the church? What he's saying in their church is this, is that the church of Jesus Christ has everything it already needs to seek reconciliation between brother and brother. That's what he's saying to the church of Corinth. You have what you need. Can it be there's no one among you who has the mind of Christ, the indwelling spirit of God, the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of man? Can it be that there's no one among you in the church who can mediate this dispute for you? And he's not talking about criminal matters. 
Uh, throughout God's word, we are to be submissive to the authorities up to a point that it, it would cause us to pledge allegiance to the nation and not to Jesus Christ. So to a point, right, Romans 13. And we even see, uh, uh, we see, even see the apostle Paul in the book of Acts, see how he handles uh, the secular courts in the day. So he's not, he's not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but he's talking about trivial, civil cases that, that for sure, for sure at no point should a Christian sue another Christian and drag them through that process. And he says, all before unbelievers. Different, uh, 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 and a different set of ethics, different view of the world, and the saints of God to go figure out uh, a civil dispute would go there, would go there to, to seek justice in this. He's saying the church already has. You're going to be heavenly judges in, uh, in chapter, and then, and then the third thing he points out, he says repeatedly, he calls, he says, brothers, Brothers, would a brother dare take a brother? And he's talking there about our corporate identity, our corporate identity as brothers and sisters, the body of Christ. And that's what leads to his next point that kind of fires Paul up. One is a distortion of the gospel. Your saints, your heavenly judges, your, your family. This is not in lock and step with who you are. Family doesn't take family to court. We love one another and we reconcile. And then the second thing is this conduct of theirs was destroying the church, actually destroying the body of Christ. Uh, the, the, the church at Corinth had an autoimmune disease. An autoimmune disease where the body actually, instead of fighting off that which is actually evil, starts attacking that which is good, right? And, and I'm sure you've seen as well as I have seen, if you've grown up in the church, been in the church for a while, churches that are plagued with an autoimmune disease and just a vision and us attacking each other. And, and what Paul is saying here is it's a lose-lose. Nobody wins in that scenario when the body starts attacking, attacking itself. And he says in verse 1, dare, dare he take the saints before the unrighteous? And when he says the unrighteous, what he's saying there is it's both a generic description, a broad description of those who are outside of the justifying work of Jesus, outside of the church, but also, but also when Paul is saying that, it's also an indictment, in, in, in a way, uh, of the civil litigation process in Corinth. He's making a moral assessment there of how that whole situation plays out. This is what Roy Siampa, a New Testament scholar, has to say about the civil litigation process in Corinth. He says, more than money was at stake in civil proceedings. Someone of high status would scrupulously avoid being taken to court because loss of reputation was a genuine concern. Bribery of judges, advocates, and witnesses occurred regularly in courts, which were frequently swayed by fear and personal con connections. With reputation on the line, the courts were awash with personal enmity. Advocates were not expected to show any restraint. The advocate was permitted to use the most unbridled language about his client's adversary or even his friends or relations or witnesses. Young orators learned their, learned their trade with colorful character assassination, often playing to crowds of onlookers. Going to law changes relationships for the worse. Acquaintances or even family members become adversaries. And listen, listen to this last line. The drive for victory replaces the hope of reconciliation. The drive for victory. You wronged me. I'm going to be victorious in this litigation. Completely replaces the, uh, the hope of reconciliation. The option that Paul is saying is you guys can either win a lawsuit or win a brother. You guys can either uh, uh, receive this victory in, in this litigation process and destroy the church. And, and what Paul says is, is essentially, with, with that being the process that you would drag your brother through, he's saying, would you really have the audacity 
to drag a blood-bought brother of Jesus Christ and listen, and his family and friends through that agonizing process, agonizing process of character assassination, public humiliation, and financial ruin. Like you're the reconciled of God because you know what? Jesus Christ was wronged. He was defrauded. Uh, he, he was under a, 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 a mock trial, a mock court, if you will, so that, so that we could go free. He did that for the sake of, of, of us being reconciled to God. And now, because Jesus went through all that, now you're going to drag your reconciled brother through that process as well. And, and uh, the third thing, that Paul is uh, kind of exhorting them to in, in his, in his uh, uh, rhetoric here is that, you know, this conduct defames the name and reputation of Jesus Christ in Corinth, right? And so the way I liken this is, is, uh, is this. So I was just, for the holiday weekend, I was just at my, my family's cabin uh, uh, Thursday and Friday, and um, something that me and Jen like to do when we're up at this cabin is, is we don't necessarily have TV or like the cable or whatever at our house, but we get the local channels up there on the, the, the TV up there. And for some reason, we've gotten to the habit. We don't like set the timer and make sure, what, but, but if it's on, we'll watch it, is, uh, is a show, maybe you know it, called Dr. Phil. Anyone here, Dr. Phil fan? It's hard for me to even confess that. But, but here's, here's, uh, here's what blows my mind about Dr. Phil. As I'm watching this, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just asking questions. I'm saying, one thing I think of is, is I see like a brother take a brother to the high courts of Dr. Phil to say, like, really? Like, that's where you're going to go for advice? Like, Dr. Phil? There? That's where we go. And, and maybe I haven't watched too much. Maybe he does give us, but some of the stuff isn't that good. But, but that's what the Apostle Paul's saying here is that it's a different worldview, completely different mindset than Jesus Christ and him crucified. You're going to get conflicting advice in this situation. And then secondly, Secondly, who wins? Like, like, if both of you make it to Dr. Phil to settle this, like, lifelong grievance you've had with each other, you both lose. Like, just showing up there is already a loss for you, and that's what the Apostle Paul says in verse 7. And then lastly, what we learn with the, the, high, the, the civil litigation process in Corinth is, is that, that, was, that was, they didn't have TV back then, so that's where people want to get entertainment. Before crowds of onlookers, they say, oh, the Christians are at it again. Those Christians at Corinth, look at, how they, uh, look at how their lawyer is just bringing the noise on his family and his relationships, right? The world is watching. The world is watching. And, and, and through our behavior, through our visible behavior, we're telling a story about the invisible God and what he's like and how he has treated us. May the reconciled of God strive for reconciliation reconciliation, not litigation. And that's what Paul would be his encouragement here in this letter and throughout his letters is, is open your eyes, Christian. Open your eyes to the, the height, the length, the depth, and the beauty of the gospel. Now go and let that be the framework for how you love one another. And the second thing that Paul says here is you're the forgiven of God. Now forgive. Look at verses seven through eight. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers? This is what we've been talking about here. If you make it to, to, the, the, to the courts, the civil courts in Corinth, it's already a loss for, for you personally, for the church, for the name and reputation of Jesus Christ. It's a loss for everyone involved, but you know who wins? You know who wins when that's the outcome? is the enemy. The enemy's got a mission-accomplished banner 
sitting there, you know, floating in his office, and he's just brewed coffee, and he's like, this is amazing. The, the gospel has been completely distorted to, to the pagan world at Corinth. Uh, the church is, is destroying each other, and, and the name and reputation of Jesus Christ is being dragged through the mud. This is great. Mission accomplished, right? Like, shame on us, church, when we uh, do the, the devil's work for him and, and are, are distorting the gospel by how we try to destroy one another and ultimately defame the name of Jesus Christ, who has lavished his grace and his kindness and his compassion and his mercy upon us over and over again. And then Paul advises the insane here. Paul advises, maybe some of us might think, the impossible in this situation. He says in verse 7, why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, take the financial hit, and win a brother rather than take him to court and, and try to win that money back and to seek justice? Why do that? You might be saying, well, Nick, what in the world does that have to do with forgiveness? How is, what does that have to do with forgiveness? Well, I would say, well, that's what forgiveness is. That's, what, that's the very act of forgiveness is choosing to take the hit yourself and to be wrong and be defrauded and forgive the person. Cancel the debt. Cancel that. That's why forgiveness is so difficult, is because we often, whether it's family members or friends or coworkers or whatever, we have been legitimately or maybe illegitimately, but legitimately wronged, defrauded. Maybe it's financial. Maybe maybe someone uh, took something from you. Right? There's there's a theft that has occurred. Uh, maybe it's your reputation. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's even your childhood. And, and someone has taken something from us. And that's why forgiveness is so difficult. That's why it's so, so difficult. But there's two options for the Christian. There's two options. You can either cancel the debt and forgive. You can identify what that person took from you and determine that that person doesn't owe you that anymore, i.e. choose to suffer wrong rather than to wrong. It's option one. Option two is demand repayment and resent that person. Demand repayment and re resent, the, uh, uh, resent them. Demand that they pay you back what they owe. And until they do, they are going to sit under your fierce wrath against them. Right? Because a helpful question when it comes to the reason why we, there's certain people in our lives, like you might be here and you might say, ah, I'm, I'm a nice guy. I don't really have a, a rap sheet of people that I'm a, I'm a but, there, but there's one or two. Some deep wounds, some deep roots in our souls, and helpful question of why it's so hard for you to forgive that person would be asked, we would ask this question, what would I lose if I chose to forgive that person? What, what, what would I lose if I let go of this resentment? Right? Because what we're doing when we hold on to that bitterness and that resentment is what we're doing is, 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 is we are enacting justice upon that person. We're trying to inflict wrath upon them and say, you need to pay for what you've done. Or, or, or pay back. And we're demanding that people give us back some things they can't even give us back. If you're, if you're waiting for your parents or, or someone to give you a new childhood, they can't do that. And so you have the option of just harboring bitterness, uh, drinking uh, poison in, in your soul, which, which Scripture says is, is resentment or bitterness, or, or listen, doing the beautiful work of, through the power of God, forgiving that person, canceling a debt, determining that they don't owe you that anymore. And I would say that the truth of the matter, if you read Matthew 18, I had to take, I was going to do a whole discourse on Matthew 18, I don't have enough time for it, but, but there is no option two for the Christian. There is no option two. 
Like we don't get, as a follower of Jesus, if I, if I say I'm in Christ and I'm a follower of Jesus, there is no option two anymore for us, church. I don't know if you realize that, but I can't just be like, yeah, I'm still mad at them and I'm still gonna be mad at them because they deserve it. Jesus does not give us that option anymore. There's only one option when it comes to, to grievances and wrongs, and it's, and, it's, and, it's, and, it's, and it's show the forgiveness that God has shown you. That's the point of Matthew 18. The context of Matthew 18 is a parable of the, unfor, the, the unworthy servant, the wicked servant, sorry, the wicked servant. And, and, and what precedes Jesus telling that story to his disciples is Peter saying, hey, Jesus, if somebody wrongs me, how many times should I forgive him? Seven times, you know, uh, seven times? And Jesus says, no, I tell you, seven times 70, an infinite amount. And then Jesus goes to tell this story of, of there's this, this kind of wicked servant who incurred a debt of 10,000 talents, which was the equivalent of 200,000 years of wages. And the king uh, settles his accounts and the servant stands before the, the king and the, and, the, and, and the king says, hey, you gotta pay back what you owe. Where's the money? And the servant says, just give me time, I'll pay it back. Just give me 200,000 years of, of a squeaky clean record of me batting 1,000, and I'll pay this back. And, uh, and, and the king says, that's, I would have to take the hit if that's the case. I'm going to have to lose the, the billions of dollars that you, you took from me. I, I'm, there's a theft that has occurred, and that's the theft of my honor, my glory. You're doing that, and, and the guy finally is, is going to, justice is going to be following me. He's going to go to, to jail until he can pay back what he owes. And then the king does the unthinkable. The king forgives and cancels the debt. It says he forgives the debt, 10,000 talents. And now that very same servant is leaving the court, just won the mega millions, feeling good. I'm debt free, baby. It's great, right? Hallelujah, our God reigns. And then he sees a servant, one of his servants, who owes him a denarius, a day wage, a couple hundred dollars. And he goes up to him and does the unthinkable. He starts choking him. Literally, it says in Jesus' story, he's choking the guy, and he's demanding, he's saying, pay back what you owe. And the guy says the exact same thing he said to the king, and he says, just give me time, I'll pay it back, it's a couple hundred dollars. And, and, and instead of doing that, the wicked servant throws his servant in jail. The king finds out about it. The king finds out about it. And in Matthew 18, 34 through 35, Jesus says some, some hard words. And because when the king finds out what that wicked servant did, how he stewarded the grace he showed him, he throws him in jail. And then Jesus says the unthinkable in verse 35. Jesus says, and so will my father do to you. Look it up, Matthew 18, 35. So my father will do to you if you do not forgive your brother and your sister from your heart. Option two for us, resentment is no longer an option. Forgive, forgive. You're the forgiven of God, now forgiven. The reason it's so hard for us to forgive is because often we don't realize the, the, the debt that has been cleared that we had before God. May the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified uh, uh, encourage us to do likewise to other because what, what Paul is summarizing here before we move on to our third and last point is that you, uh, this is only possible for the Christian to choose to be wronged rather than wrong because that is exactly what Jesus Christ did to reconcile you to God. He took on sin that wasn't his, a debt that wasn't his, a death that wasn't his to pay and he took that upon the cross, was crushed with the wrath, the just wrath that we deserved for our sins so that we could go free. Now go and show that same grace, that same love to God. So one, you're the reconciled of God, now, now, now seek reconciliation. Now two, you're the forgiven of God, now forgive. And lastly, Paul uh, says in a way that you are the righteous of God, now strive for righteousness. Look at verses nine through 11. 
Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So in verse 9, Paul is essentially just, just saying the summary statement of the problem that haunts fallen man. How can the unrighteous inherit the king and, and his kingdom? How can the unrighteous, those who still owe the king and are indebted to him billions of dollars, inherit his good and, 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 and great kingdom, Right? And there's two options. We can either go before the king and say, be patient with me. I'll pay back this debt that would be impossible for me to pay back. Or we, we throw ourselves at the grace and the mercy of this king, and somebody else pays on our behalf. And then Paul talks in verse 10 about kind of the, the marks of unrighteousness. There's a list here. It's kind of, kind of called a, a vice list in English. There's, there's nine things, but actually in the Greek, it's, 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 there's 10 things mentioned here. Um, and uh, these are kind of the marks, if you will, of those who have not experienced the transforming grace of this king, Jesus. That's what, that's what it is. And um, why this list is a good question for us, to, for us to ask. Why did Paul include what he chose to include on this list? Well, this simply is a rap sheet for the Corinthians and their vices. That's what he's saying. The reason these are named here, he says, and such were some of you. He's saying, your, your pre-Jesus pagan days, y'all, a lot of y'all in the church, this was your story, and now you're still reverting back to that, but that's not, this behavior of yours is not who you are in Christ Jesus. You've been cleansed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified. And what's interesting, a common uh, thread through to kind of link all of these vices, if you will, together is this idea of taking from others at the cost of others for personal gain, taking from others at the cost of others for personal gain. And again, he, 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 he concludes this, we'll talk about this in the conclusion of verse 11, he's saying this behavior of yours, it's not who you are in Christ Jesus, and it's not what you have in Christ Jesus. It's not what you have in Christ Jesus. And so a couple of thoughts on this vice list is, is, um, is this, before we rush to highlight simply one vice on this list, can we all agree upon the fact that, um, church, we're, we're all on this list? Can we agree upon that? Like, like, we don't stand outside this list. Lord knows we don't stand above it to look down and condemn those mentioned on this list. We're all on the list, transit church. That's what the cross of Jesus Christ screams of our inadequacy and, and levels any moral high ground we think we have because it's just as much your sin as my sin as the sins of those on this list that, brought, that crushed the Son of God uh, on Calvary's Hill, okay? We're all on the list. All of us. If you disagree with me, we live in northern Virginia, one of the richest, richest counties in the world. Anyone here guilty of greed rather than generosity? Hey, we just celebrated the 4th of July. If you had a, a couple more beers than you normally do to take the edge off, well, congratulations. You, you're two for two on being a drunkard and idolater because you ran to beer uh, for hope and peace and rest, which only Jesus can do. That's an act of worship, right? So boom, two for two. If you're here today and, and uh, 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 you know, there's, there's some other things uh, mentioned on this list as well, and I got to keep it PG, but husbands, wives, where's your thought life? 
You monogamous in, in all your thoughts and all your, where, where your mind is wandering? Where, where, where are we going? What are we, what are we viewing? Because the stats would say that uh, a large majority of Christians in this room struggle with certain internet addictions. We're all on the list. We're all on the list. There is no one, listen, listen, there is no one beyond the need of grace. Even today, you Christian, you, you need, I need grace. The second I wake up, even when I'm sleeping, I need grace. There's no one beyond the need of grace. And listen, there's no one beyond the reach of grace. There's no one beyond the reach of grace, which leads me to my second point. And, and the reason I'm highlighting this is not to, to just highlight it for the sake of highlighting it, but we just came off of, of, uh, of a certain month that was celebrating certain things. And there, then this is explicitly condemned in, in Scripture. And um, the question I want to ask and answer is, what should, the, what should the church's response be towards those mentioned on this list? Particularly the LGBTQ community. And um, if you have any friends in that community or have listened to podcasts or read books, this passage is one of six uh, places in Scripture that condemns homosexuality. And, and they, uh, the, 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 the gay community knows this as one of the clobber verses is what they call it. Because evangelicals clobber them over the head with condemnation with this verse. It's known as a clobber verse. And I recently read a, a popular article by a popular author on a popular Christian website. And I would just kind of, kind of just... Um, sorrowful in my soul with it, what the deduction was in response to um, Gay Pride Month. And, and basically, at, at the end of the article, and it was trending, it was, it was trending, which brought me more concern, was basically this. He's, answer, he's asking the question, how should the church respond? And basically at the end, and maybe this is a caricature of what he says, but at the same time, I don't think it is. The church should just shout the truth louder. Dig our heels in the sand and shower condemnation upon people. And you know what? He didn't say this, but I think it was, it was missing in his thing. But, but, and starve them of compassion. Let's shower them with condemnation and, and starve them of compassion. And I was, as, I, as I read this, I was kind of laughing to myself. And I was like, wait, that's the problem? That's the problem? Uh, that, that we, that, that, like, listen, no one, no one in, in the gay community has any doubt where the evangelical church stands on the issue. They don't have any doubt where we evangelicals stand on the issue. Their concern, that what, what brings them confusion, is we claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. And, 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 and not too many of us are showing them compassion that Jesus has freely shown us. That's the problem. That's the problem. We shout condemnation from a distance. Megaphone man on the corner. Fire and brimstone. But we dare not get close. We dare not take the time to actually win a friend, win a brother, win a sister. The problem is we are selective with our compassion. I was child by Brennan Manning. I was reading it a couple weeks ago, and this um, just really, really stuck out to me, this quote. This is what he has to say about this idea of indiscriminate compassion of Jesus Christ. He says, the command of Jesus to love one another, and you have to listen, it's on the screen. The command of Jesus to love one another is never circumscribed by the nationality, listen, status, ethnic background, sexual preference, or inherent lovableness of the other. The other, the one who has any claim on my love, is anyone to whom I am able to respond, as the parable of the Good Samaritan clearly illustrates. Which of these uh, three, in your opinion, was neighbor to the man who fell in with the robbers, Jesus asked. And the answer came, the one who treated him with compassion. And Jesus said to him, go and do the same. 
And so this insistence on the absolute indiscriminate nature of compassion within the kingdom of God is the dominant perspective of almost all of Jesus' teaching. What is indiscriminate compassion? Take a look at a rose. Listen up to this. This is, this is good stuff. Take a look at a rose. Is it possible for the rose to say, I'll offer my fragrance to good people and withhold it from bad people? Or can you imagine a lamp that withholds its rays from a wicked person who seeks to walk in its light? It could do that only by ceasing to be a lamp. Did you catch that? Mercy. I can't even tell you what I wrote in the margins. I was so blown away by what he said by that. Ceases to be a lamp. And he continues. And observe how helplessly and indiscriminately a tree gives its shade to everyone. Good and bad, young and old, high and low, to animals and humans and every living creature, even to the one, listen, even to the one who seeks to cut it down. This is the first quality of compassion. It's indiscriminate nature. Indiscriminate nature. That's the compassion that Jesus Christ calls us to. And we ask ourselves, where in the world do we see that kind of compassion? Where can we look to? Who can we look to as a model for that kind of radical, indiscriminate compassion? I don't know. Maybe our Savior, Jesus Christ. Look at Luke 19. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 19. The verse will be on the screen. The story of Zacchaeus, okay? And, and, and for the sake of time, I'll just start reading this. But this is, this is a, 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 I just love Jesus' heart towards Zacchaeus, and it's helpful for us in regards to this issue. Jesus entered Jericho. It was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Uh, tax collectors were uh, scoundrels, okay? They, they were Israelites who robbed their fellow Hebrew brothers to fill the pockets of Rome and fill their own pockets. This dude was rich. He was wealthy, but it, became, but it, but it came through uh, greed and lying and defrauding his own very people. He's a scoundrel, Zacchaeus was. And that's what's so interesting is Jesus had compassion towards uh, the blind, the paralytic, the widow, the orphan, the leper, those who life dealt a bad hand, but also the tax collector, the, the prostitute, the adulterer. In verse 3, and he was, he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Just a quick side note, very interesting that the crowd who was closest to Jesus actually kept Zacchaeus away from Jesus, right? Jesus. Hey, oh, hey, you need to see Jesus. Hey, we can make a spot for you. No, no, you're a tax collector. Let's box you out. Like, we're going for a rebound and pick up basketball. We're going to box you out because you don't belong here. You're not like us. And so Zacchaeus actually has to go climb a tree outside of the crowd to finally get a view of what Jesus is like because he sure isn't getting it from the crowd. And so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to him for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, Jesus looked up to him and said, Zacchaeus, you filthy, slimy tax collector. I hope you fall down that tree and hit every branch on the way down. Because, and then you know what? I'll go up to you, I'll whisper in your ear, God hates tax collectors. Did Jesus say that? No, no, church. This is what Jesus said. Listen, listen, look at the compassion of Jesus Christ to this, uh, to this man. Look at the compassion. He says the unthinkable, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I'm going to stay at your house today. 
I'm coming to get to know you. I'm going to get close to you. See, Jesus, what came out of Jesus' mouth was not condemnation. It was an invitation to a relationship. That's the heart that Jesus had for us, right? All of us are here it's because that's what Jesus did to us. He said, hey, I'm coming to live in your heart today. I'm coming to know you, and I'm going to reconcile you to the Father. And he goes, and, and Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, listen, to, look at the response of the Pharisees, the, uh, the religious experts of the day. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. And he says, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. We don't hang out with those people. They're not like us. They're different than us. And Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And the question I want to pose to you is, um, which response, the response, of the, tax, uh, the, the response of the Pharisees or of Jesus, brought about the repentance of Zacchaeus? The compassion of Jesus or the condemnation of the religious people brought about the repentance of Zacchaeus. And my challenge for all of us today, my, my, me, uh, me especially, would be if we are here today and we claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, then let's start following Jesus. Let's start going where he went. Let's start talking to people that, that he talked to because the moment we're comfortable following this Jesus, we're no longer following Jesus. And so conclusion, to conclude, I'll ask this question. How are the unrighteous made Righteous. How is the hopeless sinner turned into a beloved child of God? And Paul thankfully answers that question in verse 11. And he says this, And such were some of you. Such were some of us, condemned in our sins, unrighteous, without the hope of Jesus. But then, he says, Corinthians, but then something happened. Something happened. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God washed. Your sins white as snow, forgiven, sanctified, set apart, adopted into the family of God to inherit the king and his, his kingdom forever. And you're justified. The highest court in, in the heavens has declared upon you, you're righteous, you're clean, you're holy in my sight. It's the best news on the planet. And the question that I want to pose is this, is who is the primary actor in verse 11? Right? Is it, is, it, is it Nick Mudrzo who washed himself up and through his good efforts cleaned himself up and made himself righteous before God? Or was it Jesus Christ and him crucified? Apply to me in the name of Jesus and by the power of, of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, we're at my family's cabin uh, over the weekend and uh, we drove my family's car. We drive a Toyota Highlander and I'll wrap up with this story. Um, and uh, it's the family car. So we got two kids in the back and, and if, if you have a family car like a minivan or whatever, you know that the inside gets... Uh, a little dirty, if you catch my drift. Like, there's an inch of, like, smudge marks all over the inside of the glass. Uh, the, uh, there's Cheerio dust everywhere. Uh, the cushions are like a, a mass grave for goldfish in between the, you know, the cushions and all this stuff. And it, it has an interesting smell, if you will, okay? And um, all of a sudden, I'm, I'm, it's Friday. I'm up at one of the other cabins working on my sermon. I come back down, and my car is, is like, brand new, inside and out, fully cleaned, fully detailed. Because my dad has this thing where he can't spend a certain amount of time in the presence of, of dirty cars. <laughs> it's a thing, like for sure. Like if you have it, like save yourself 20 bucks after the sermon, I'll give you his address. Just park your car in front of his house and just see what happens. Oil change, fully detailed. And my dad, like, no joke, he has like this, the foam that like makes the tires pop. 
know what I'm talking about? You spray it on and phone, boom. So anyways, that happened to my car. That happened to my car. It was hallelujah, right? How silly of me to come back down. And as I'm driving home from that vacation, man, get a little swagger. Be like, oh, man, I'm, my car is so clean through my hard work. My car is unlike all these other dirty cars on this, uh, this highway here. They're not like me. I'm different from them. How silly of me to get proud about work I had nothing to do with. How, how silly of me to be proud about work where my only contribution was bringing my mess in proximity of God the Father. That's what I contributed. That's what we all contributed to this relationship with God, church, is the fact that we are in need of grace. We are in need of cleansing and the sanctifying work of God. So what the proper response to that is humble gratitude. Humble gratitude. So much so that it causes me to just appreciate my father more. But most importantly, when I see other cars that aren't so fresh and so clean, clean as my car on the road, deep reference there for some of you, um, to look at them and say, hey, let me introduce you to somebody I know who's in the business of making all things new, who's, who's in the business of making the dead come to life, who, who's in the business of making the dirty clean, who's in the business of taking your condemnation and giving you justification. No shame, no condemnation for those who know this good God. Let me introduce you to him. He does great work. He does great work. How do I know that? Because of what he's done in my heart. Such was me. Such were all of us. But then, but, 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 but then something happened, right? There was a transition that happened, an exchange that happened where we brought our filthiness and got the righteous rags, the righteous robe of, of Jesus Christ uh, placed on us through his sacrifice, through his death, through his resurrection, through his work, his work. That's the best news in the world. And may that beautiful, glorious news of who this God is and how much he loves us cause us to export what's been imported to us to a world that desperately needs us. That's how, that's how the unrighteous are made righteous, not through our own efforts, but through the effort of this man, Jesus. And he did this out of love for you. And you might be here today and you say, well, how do I respond to this message? I would say simply put a simple illustration of what the Christian life looks like is to be a Christian, you move from this in life uh, fist clenched, uh, casting out the presence of God, wanting nothing to him because you don't think you have a need for him. You say, I can do this in my own strength. I don't need grace. Moving from this simply to this. Open hands, receiving what Jesus Christ has accomplished on your behalf, the free gift of salvation. Moving from this to this, saying, Jesus Christ, come in power in my life. I'm tired of living life alone, stuck in my sin. I need to be cleansed. I need to be forgiven. I want to be reconciled. I want to know you. I want to know the good news of this gospel. I want to know you, Jesus. Open hands. And then as we open our hands and listen, and he actually does what he promises to do in our lives and make the dead come to life, all of a sudden we go from this to this. And this now is the cry of our hearts, ascribing glory to God for the work that he's done undeserved in our lives. In spite of us, in spite of our sin and depravity, he keeps showing up and is faithful to cleanse us. And even when we take that clean car and we go back into the mud pit, he drags us out and, and cleans us back up. It's all his work. And if you're here today and you're a Christian and this has been describing your life and your walk with Jesus, Jesus doesn't want us to live like that. He wants us to live 
in, in fellowship with him. This casts out Jesus. This invites him in to every aspect of life we face. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, simply open up your hands and ask Jesus to come into your heart and, and do what he promised to do. Cleanse you from your sins and, and reconcile, reconcile you to God who loves you and loves you so much that uh, he sent his son to die on your behalf so you could be forgiven and experience uh, an avalanche of grace and love and mercy that he has for you. So let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, that you are such a good God, that in, in spite of us, Lord, your word teaches us that while, while we were still sinners and, and our backs turned to you, you were, you, you were dying for us. Jesus, you were praying for the very people that were nailing you to that tree. And you did this out of love. And the reason now that we can be commanded to love is because you first loved us. You modeled to us how we are to treat our fellow brother and our sister. So Heavenly Father, we need you today. Uh, these have been strong words, Lord, and we all fall short of what you call us to. But I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come in and that you would, you would impart to us the compassion of Jesus. That there is, If there's a lack in our hearts of one, of understanding the love you have for us, I pray the prayer of the Apostle Paul prays for us that we would further know and comprehend your love in Christ Jesus. And two, that you would, you would cause us to, to even weep for those who don't know you, Jesus that our hearts would be uh, wrenched out of anguish for those who are lost without you, and that we would do uh, what you did to us and show them the compassion of our good Father who has loved us and treated us far better than we deserve. And I thank you, God, that in you we don't get what we deserve. We get what we don't deserve. And that's your daily grace, your daily mercy. And your mercies are new every morning for us. So we love you, Jesus. And um, we pray this in your name. Amen.